Hello and welcome to Inside Exercise. I'm Emeritus Professor Glenn McConnell from Victoria University in Australia, and I'm also currently a Danish Diabetes and Endocrine Academy visiting professor at the University of Copenhagen. The idea behind Inside Exercise is to bring to you the absolute who's who of exercise research. So exercise physiology, exercise metabolism, and exercise and health. And what I really want is for you to get your exercise information from the research experts rather than from influencers. And indeed, today I bring to you Professor David Wright from the University of British Columbia in Canada. He's an expert on exercise metabolism. For many years, he was looking at uh, exercise metabolism in muscle. And then he started looking more and more at the effects of exercise on adipose tissue, so on fat. So for example, not only does exercise increase mitochondrial um, content in muscle, it also increases it in fat. So he's been looking at how that's regulated, et cetera. And then the past few years, he's also shifted to looking more and more at the effect of antipsychotics. Although antipsychotics are obviously critically important for people having psychotic episodes, they have been shown to cause weight gain. But interestingly, Professor Wright has been shown that even acutely, so with each time you take an antipsychotic, it can increase your glucose levels. And he's been showing that exercise can prevent that. So very important work. I found the discussion very interesting. I think you will too, so stick around. Hi, David. How are you doing? Thanks for coming on Inside Exercise. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Glad to be here and, and be able to chat with you a little bit today. Yeah, we we're just talking before uh, on air that I'm a visiting professor here in Copenhagen, University of Copenhagen, and you also are, but you've had, because of COVID, you've had a bit of a hiccup. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think like you uh, got a visiting professorship through the DDA. Uh, and myself, my entire family were, were set to come over, uh, losing track of time here with COVID, like 2019, 2020, and then, you know, the world stopped. So instead of doing one kind of big six month chunk for my sabbatical, we, you know, I ended up taking two or three weeks here and there. Um, so I'll be back over there, uh, actually in a few weeks. Oh, great. Well, maybe I'll see you then because mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I've, I actually managed to, to, just to, to uh, get good with the timing so six months in 2019 then COVID and then six months yeah. and they even let me extend because of COVID so now I'm back yeah, for another nice. five and a half months nice. <laughs> all right so um we're going to chat about fat uh, metabolism and fat adaptations to exercise yeah but why don't yeah. you give us a bit of a background you look like a bit of a lean machine there I'm assuming you started off as a as an athlete or something and then got interested in exercise is that how it worked out and then how well I mean I, I thanks I, I mean I, I don't know if I consider myself an athlete I like to run I like to ride my bike so I, I've always had an interest in, in in physical activity but I never really did anything at a, a super competitive high level mm -hmm. probably like the majority of folks you've you've had on this pod um mm -hmm. Did my PhD in the human performance lab at Ball State. So I know that you've had a, a bunch of ex-Ball Staters on this on this pod. So that's great mm -hmm. to see. Um, and I worked with uh, a guy called Bruce Craig and we, we did some skeletal muscle glucose uptake type stuff. Um, and then Bruce had actually done a, a postdoc with John Halsey. So I was finishing up with Bruce. I was looking for a postdoc position. John had a, a position open, went down and, and, and interviewed with, with a crew down there and, and, and was lucky enough to, to secure a postdoc position. And so when I was in John's lab, my first couple of years, we were looking at the role of calcium and, and AMPK signaling in terms of mediating contraction stimulated 
uh, glucose transport. So this would have kind of been early to mid 2000s. And so that was a fairly hot topic uh, back in that time anyway. So Eric Richter, who obviously you know really well, uh, and Laurie, Laurie Goodyear were, were, were looking at the same questions. And then uh, I kind of switched or transitioned from the glucose transport story my first couple of years and probably my last two years of my postdoc, we were looking at, you know, mechanisms involved in exercise-induced mitochondrial biogenesis in skeletal muscle, which was really interesting. And I think around that time, uh, I was starting to look for, for faculty positions. And, you know, I, I think I realized pretty quickly into my postdoc that I don't want to be looking at the same questions that John is looking at because I was never going to be able to mm -hmm. kind of compete academically and intellectually with, with, with that machine. Right. So um, I had a, a couple of job interviews lined up. I wanted to get a little bit of preliminary data of my own. And I kind of had this idea of, you know, could we look at the, or, or ask the same questions that we're studying in skeletal muscle but can we look at it in adipose tissue? What kind of really got me thinking about adipose, this would have kind of been mid 2000s, um, was the effects of, of anti-diabetic insulin sensitizing drugs like rosiglitazone. So mm -hmm. these, these AD compounds had a pretty pronounced insulin sensitizing effect. And that seemed to be associated with increases in adipose tissue mitochondrial content or mitochondrial biogenesis within white adipose tissue. So we asked, you know, kind of very basic, simple question, does exercise turn on mitochondrial biogenesis and does it induce PGC1 alpha in white adipose tissue? So it kind of brought this idea to John and he kind of rolled his eyes and said, yeah, I mean, you can take adipose tissue from, from some of these rats that we're training. I don't, I don't think you'll sorry, see mate, anything. I'm going to stop you. Sorry. You keep bashing yeah. your table. You oh, sorry. Going. Yeah. And it, and it yeah. echoes through the whole. Yeah, joint. sorry. Yeah, so, so so this idea of of you know looking at mitochondria biogenesis and adipose tissue. So I I talked to John about it. Said you know we're doing these training studies. Can I take some adipose tissue from these rats? Because we were literally just just throwing the stuff out. And, and was, he rolled his eyes, so he thought it wasn't it wasn't. Yeah, he's or... like, you know, he's very muscle centric, right? Yeah, exactly. Which is fine, which is great. Um, and it was probably a little bit of a blessing in disguise that he didn't have any interest in it. Um, yes. So we were, able, we were able to get a little bit of preliminary data and, and, and that kind of set the stage for my transition in, into an, in, you know, an independent investigator position um, when I first moved back to Canada. Um, and so we started to look at, you know, really kind of low hanging fruit, I think, in terms of, all right, does exercise induce mitochondrial biogenesis and adipose tissue, yes or no? And could PGC1-alpha be involved in this process? Um, so okay. if you go back and you, you, you look at the literature, um, there'd be one prior paper, it was about 1990, 1991. Benta Stolnik from Copenhagen was the lead author mm -hmm. on that, that paper and that came out of Henrik Gobel's lab. And they showed a, a pretty nice induction of mitochondrial biogenesis with, with exercise training in, in, in rats. Now I say exercise training, it was, it was swim training, right, in rats. So maybe take that with a, with a grain of salt. Um, but they didn't look at any kind of the molecular signaling pathways that could be involved. Actually, can we just say the grain of salt? So I, I'm assuming you're saying to to exercise rats it, it's swimming it's like so often it's five hours or they put like a weight on the tail yeah. so there's a lot of stress 
And I know we'll probably mention it later. You've got some stuff about adrenaline maybe affecting fat. So you're saying it, it, we don't know if it's the training or it's the stress. Is that what you're thinking? Or? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fairly extreme model of exercise for sure. And I think probably the, the translational relevance of it to humans is slim or none, um, but it's a model, right? So um, I guess any model that we use uh, has its, has its limitations, right? So, um, but we're going to say, but I want to say something earlier. It just I just wanted to sort of maybe a teaching op for people or something. How you, how you went from from you were looking at mitochondrial biogenesis and muscle, and then you went yep. to look in, in fat, and you're looking at A and B K and calcium, and then so oh maybe that's regulating in fat as well, because I was actually a similar time I was looking at regulation of glucose uptake A and B K, but seeing if it was going through nitric oxide, and then calcium. Because nitric oxide is a nitric oxide synthase is a calcium dependent enzyme. Say, so, oh, maybe it's going that way to glucose uptake. But then, probably about the same time, I thought, oh, wonder if it's affecting mitochondrial biogenesis, but not in fat, but in muscle. And I literally had a grant application. I crossed out glucose uptake and, and wrote mitochondrial biogenesis, and it got funded yeah. because they both were saying it could be calcium, it could be AAPK, it could be nitric oxide. And and then yeah. you've actually gone. Now, and now it sort of makes sense because we know how integrative the body is that, that like if something is happening in muscle, it's not that surprising. It could be talking, but at that time people weren't thinking that integratively, right. That to jump from like muscle to fat. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't know if I was thinking more integratively or not. I mean, really you could probably make an argument that it was, you know, just lack of creativity looking at the same question in adipose tissue, as but, I had then again, muscle. Then but. again, because I know talking about AMPK again, was it Rudiman and Saha? I think Saha was the first author. They showed that exercising rats, you got activation of AMPK in muscle, but also in fat and liver. Yeah. Now, yeah. Was that around the same time, or was that? It, uh, it, yeah, it was, and I might be getting the dates wrong. There's work from Ruderman's lab, kind of came out early to mid two thousands. Um, and Lori Goodyear's lab as well. Um, and, and so Lori's done some really, really, obviously some really, really mm. work mm. in the field of exercise physiology and biochemistry, but they showed that exercise induced increases in AMPK and adipose tissue was dependent upon catecholamine signaling. Oh, great. Okay. Well, this is really interesting, maybe for you and me, but we're probably a, a little bit ahead of some people. So can yeah. we start off just thinking about during exercise, you know, what's happening to uh, adipose tissue, you know, sure. different intensities, different durations and things. So what we people tend to think about just generally, sure. with, you know, release of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so I think once we start exercising, one of the initial signals or triggers that goes off, it's an increase in circulating catecholamine levels. And so mm -hmm. we're talking epinephrine or norepinephrine, adrenaline or noradrenaline, depending mm -hmm. upon where you live, right? And that is going to be a really potent stimulator of adipose tissue lipolysis. So lead to the liberation of, of fatty acid from adipose tissue. So it'll get kicked out into the circulation and then it can get taken up by skeletal muscle and used as a, as a substrate to fuel that. So we're talking about subcutaneous. So the fat that people think of just your love handles and whatever, just the normal stored fat under the skin. Yeah. Under the skin and then also visceral adipose tissue as well. So, so all, yeah. that will also be uh, uh, liberated 
during exercise. That's interesting. So, so does, uh, ooh, okay. So do we actually know, I'm cutting off there, but, but is, is, is most of the fat during exercise coming from subcutaneous and some from visceral or do we, is it 50, 50 or, uh, so visceral is around the organs people. Right. I'm not so sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question, Glenn. And I, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think of any data that, that would kind of show relative percentages of of yeah. fat that's mobilized during exercise if it's you know primarily subcutaneous versus versus visceral or not. Jeff oh, Horowitz okay. might have some data on that. Yeah, I, I can't recall off the top of my head, but I think it's probably yeah. safe to assume that both kind of broad depots mm -hmm. are, are contributing as we exercise. And I think that you know. The greater the exercise intensity and, and the the longer the duration of exercise, um, you'll see a greater contribution, right? And so, if you're exercising for multiple hours, there will be a significant mm -hmm. contribution of adipose tissue derived fatty acids as substrate uh, to be oxidized by by skeletal muscle. And I think, especially as as glycogen levels in muscle and and liver start to deplete. Yes, so with prolonged exercise, but with the intensities, um, you know, there's obviously the the, the studies showing like maybe sixty five percent VO to max might be fifty fifty fat and carbohydrate. Then above that, it's going to be more carbohydrate. But I guess yeah, then you start talking about well, is an absolute versus relative. But but essentially, yeah. lower intensity prolonged, you'll you'll burn more fat. Yeah, even yes. even though you're burning less yeah. calories per minute. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And the adrenaline is yeah. is part of what's stimulating that? It is. So the increase in adrenaline and noradrenaline, and then the reduction in, in insulin, right, that occurs during mm -hmm. exercise as well. So insulin has an anti-lipolytic effect. So kind of the ratio between those two. Thank you. Yeah. Cool. All right. So you're getting the adipose tissue um uh, well, it's lipolysis, yeah. So breaking down the stored triglycerides to fatty acids into the blood, and then the muscle can take it up. Um, and I guess we should we should mention um, because I know students don't always remember the intramuscular triglycerides. So is it worth just mentioning that this, this the intramuscular triglycerides as well? Sure, and and you know that's that's an area that we don't study that much really at all. Um, but intramuscular triglyceride is also a, a, a contributor to the provision of, of, of fatty acid to contract the skeletal muscle during exercise. And some of the mm -hmm. same pathways that you see in adipose tissue are also activated in skeletal muscle, right? So, so we look at the activation of some of these lipolytic enzymes, hormone-sensitive lipase, ATGL, those are both activated in skeletal muscle and in white adipose tissue during exercise and probably contribute to exercise-induced lipolysis in both tissue beds that we're talking about. Right, right. So that's acute exercise, but I guess you're you're thinking more about adaptations to training, is that right, in terms of yeah. uh, effects on fat? So so what are you looking at and what are you finding there? Right, so, so kind of our, our earlier work in the area show that if you exercise train a rodent, and we've done this with, so with swim training, that was our initial work, right? Um, also with uh, forced treadmill exercise, which is a little bit better than, than, than swim training. So mm -hmm. you can control the duration and intensity, still stressful uh, to the animal. 
Um, and then voluntary wheel running. So, so just giving other rats or mice access to a voluntary uh, running wheel in their cage and just, just letting, letting them go at it. And so, you know, depending upon the strain of animal that, that you're looking at, uh, animals can run, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of five to 10K a night. So a high volume of exercise for sure. And, and in all three models, we see increases in the amount or the number of mitochondria in white adipose tissue. So kind of mirroring exactly what we see in skeletal muscle, we see the same thing uh, in white adipose tissue. Mm-hmm. And some of the same wow. kind of molecular signaling mechanisms involved. So PGC1 alpha is, is induced in muscle uh, with exercise. We see the same thing in, in, in white adipose tissue as well. The PGC1 alpha is that is the sort of master regulator of mitochondrial biogenesis. Yeah. So, yes. so increasing yes. your mitochondrial volume is what you want or content, and, but, but content, also yeah. the function, I guess, also the function. Also the function. Yep. So, I mean, we, I'm trying to think, we've never actually measured mitochondrial respiration in adipose tissue from trained animals. Um, so we've, we've looked at markers. So citrate synthase activity, uh, Cox activity, um, you know, looked at kind of uh, markers or, or readouts of mitochondrial content. So, you know, oxfos protein content, mitochondrial DNA protein content. Uh, and, and they all, they all track in adipose tissue, similar to what we see. Yeah. You know, okay. in so, so it's the content that goes up mitochondrial content, but you don't really look at the function and people haven't really looked at mitochondrial function, you know, like, yeah, not to the same extent as they it's have muscle. Muscle, for sure. So yeah. it's very interesting to think about, isn't it? Because it's naturally a very different kettle of fish so in the muscle you're actually wanting to increase your aerobic capacity so you can exercise better and and there's also other so i've had russ heppel on and you know he's sure. made it very yeah. clear that obviously there's a lot more to the mitochondria than just producing energy for exercise but but why is it actually increased is it is it more to do with the insulin sensitivity of the fat or is it is it to do with the oxygen consumption of the fat you know, I mean, I mean, we we think we we haven't really empirically tested this as of yet, but with each bout of exercise, there is an energetic demand that's placed on adipose tissue, and so if we go back to this discussion of lipolysis, right? So we think of uh, lipolysis. You think of a triglyceride molecule. Mm-hmm. Adrenaline goes up, binds to its receptor, turns on some signaling pathways, and you have a release of fatty acid out into the circulation. And that's really kind of an oversimplified view biochemically of what's going on in adipose tissue when you Mm -hmm. stimulate adrenergically, right? And so if we were to quantify the amount of that liberated fatty acid in adipose tissue that actually gets kicked out into the circulation and ends up in the muscle, about Mm -hmm. 50% of that liberated fatty acid from that triglyceride droplet is kicked out into the circulation. A small amount is oxidized, like less than one half of 1%, so negligible amount. And then the remainder is actually re-esterified back to triglycerides. So there's fuel cycling that goes on. Okay. And that fuel cycling is probably the largest single drain on high energy phosphates in a fat cell. And so if you think of exercise or exercise training, right, with each bud of exercise, yes, mm-hmm. you're seeing increases in uh, lipolysis and fatty acid being kicked out into the circulation, but you're also mm-hmm. seeing, you know, fatty acid recycling back to triglyceride, and that's an energetic stress. 
And so okay. like, just like in muscle, right? The induction of mitochondrial biogenesis in muscle with exercise is probably responding to some degree of energetic stress with, with contractile right. activity. I think analogous to that in adipose tissue, we're seeing the same thing. And so mm -hmm. instead of that energetic stress being due to the muscle contracting, it's due to fatty acid reesterification being increased. Okay, so just to make sure people are clear on some of those terms, yeah. So, so triglyceride, as it sounds like, tri means three. Yeah. Um, fatty acids bound to a glycerol, which is the glyceride bit. And when you're breaking down the fat with lipolysis, you, you, you're breaking off the fatty acids. And then you're saying you're re-esterifying, so you're putting the fatty acids back on the glycerol. So, yeah. you know, you go from a, a um, monoglyceride to a diglyceride to a triglyceride again, and that takes yeah. energy. Now, yeah. it seems like, and you, you call that, you know, futile cycling, because it is futile. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so why, does anyone have any idea why the fatty acid, why the fat does that? Because it seems like a particularly inefficient way of going about doing things. Exactly. And that's a really, really good question that you bring up. And, it, and it's something that we've spent a lot of time thinking about. Again, we don't really have any empirical evidence to, to, generate a, a solid hypothesis but maybe it's maybe it's you know if we look at exercise right we see huge increases in circulating catecholamine levels so adrenaline noradrenaline and maybe that's actually an overshoot and so mm -hmm. by having this relatively high degree of fatty acid reesterification maybe what that's doing it it's protecting against lipotoxicity following mm -hmm. exercise cessation so if you weren't able to restrain a certain amount of what of of uh, fatty acid release from adipose tissue, you stop exercising. Maybe you'd have a condition of lipotoxicity. So that would be a, a, another kind of uh, degree of 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 control. And if you look okay. at fatty acid levels during exercise, they mm -hmm. in the circulation they wouldn't appear to be limiting, right? I mean, they increase. Mm -hmm. Don't so limiting. Yeah, it, 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 it's very curious why that happens, though. Not massively, is it? Because, I mean, I can't remember. I think it's 0.5 millimole or something. And then it sort of goes up to one, you know, during sort of normal yeah. exercise, like an hour or two. It's not yeah. massive increases, but you've got these massive turnover in the, in the muscle, in the, in the adipose tissue, yeah? Yeah. Um, and the other thing it just reminded me when you said about the, so when you stop, you might, you know, you don't want to get this lipotoxicity where you're just pumping on all those lipids and it gets taken up by who knows the coronary heart, arteries or something. It reminds me when you do high intensity exercise, there's a reduction in blood flow in the adipose tissue, right? And then when you stop, it does flush out fatty acids. Yeah, is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so I mean that 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 does happen for sure. I think though, with high intensity interval training. There is such an increased metabolic demand in the muscle that there's probably a a, a little bit of matching between the two, right? Mm. And so during that actually, kind of post exercise period, it's actually pretty interesting because someone just just the other day I was talking to someone about because you tend to think during high intensity exercise, obviously you using a lot more carbohydrate than fat, but I think it was Larry Spreet, classic stuff, you know, in Canada. When you do repeated sprints, like the Marty Cabala sort of 30 second sprints, four minutes recovery, by the third or fourth one, you're actually using quite a lot of fat. That would probably make sense. Yeah, I'd have to go back and take a look at that data. 
for sure. Ah, okay, all right. Sorry yeah. about that. Okay, yeah. so I'm just thinking a question there that we could um, tease out. There's a question on Twitter from someone called Marco just saying, are there differences in acute effect of exercise on adipose tissue in lean versus obese subjects? So I'm not sure if you've thought about that. So is there a difference? Because he's saying, you know, literature suggests that um, exercise-induced adipose tissue lipolysis is impaired in obese slash insulin-resistant subjects. So what we've been talking about is obviously, you know, what happens in your healthy non-obese person. Um, Is there a difference, do you know, with that? Yes, yeah, so so we we've done some studies, and again, this isn't a rodent model, but if you have a, a lean animal and an animal that you've provided uh, you know a high fat diet to for several months, and then you challenge that animal either with exercise or with an adrenergic stimulus of some kind, so injecting with epinephrine or or, or norepinephrine, the degree of adipose tissue lipolysis and the induction some kind of early response genes in adipose tissue is muted or reduced okay. in obese okay. condition versus the lean condition. And so I think this idea of kind of beta adrenergic resistance has been fairly well established in the literature for sure. Okay. So, so that means during exercise, they'd be having less of the adrenaline effect to like break heptolipolysis and re-esterify. There'll be just sort of less of everything going on. Was that the idea? Or? Mm. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't know off the top of my head whether or not that is the case. I mean, there is a degree of adrenergic resistance, but adipose tissue does still respond to mm-hmm. exercise in the obese condition versus the lean condition, just not to the same extent. All right. Now, I wonder if that could be the re- part of the reason why they tend to burn more carbohydrate during exercise, perhaps. Could be. I mean, Maybe not. you know, in the obese situation, right? You you have metabolic in, inflexibility, so that would fit with mm-hmm. what you're suggesting, right? For sure. Yeah, yeah. All right. So so um, we started off talking about the uh, what you've looked at with exercise training, increasing the the mitochondrial um, content and uh, biogenesis, etc. So yeah. have you looked further at what's regulating that? Um, you know what's yeah. Uh, and so, and so, I mean, we think that, that I should back up and say that there's been a lot of labs kind of looking at this idea. Um, and, you know, it's being put forward. That's a muscle derived factor of some kind, maybe. So muscle contracts during exercise kicks out a signaling factor of some kind, which signals to adipose tissue and then is driving these adaptations that we've talked about. Um, I have a tendency to think maybe a little more simpler. Um, I think it's probably adrenergically driven and so we've Mm -hmm. we've done some work this was kind of late 2000 so about 2009 2010 Um, and if you treat an animal with a beta blocker like uh, propranolol so this will gum up the beta adrenergic receptors um, the acute effects of exercise anyways are blunted or attenuated so if we look at the induction of pgc1 alpha for example in an animal that's been treated with this beta blocker the induction in PGC1 is probably reduced by about 50 to, 50 to 60%. So we think that's probably an initial signal that that's mediating some of these adaptive changes. Not to say that okay. muscle drive factors might not be playing a role, but but we don't we don't seem to think that that's really a, a primary driver. 
I wonder if it changes or something with training, because I know with training you tend to get, because it's less of a challenge to your homeostasis at the same workload, you get less increases in adrenaline and noradrenaline during exercise. You yeah? yeah, you do for sure, but adipose tissue becomes more sensitive to it. So it's oh, almost nice. washing. Okay. Yeah, it's almost yeah because you because you burn more fat when you're trained. Yeah. So you don't yeah. think it's um these my so you know there's always talk about myokine so IL six and all sorts of sure. things being released for muscle to fat. You think I know you've had papers. I think you've talking about maybe myokines interacting with the brain and things like that. But you think in terms of fat, it's probably not. It's, it's not necessarily important. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, we think it might play a, mod a modulatory role. Um, and, and so we, I mean, we've done stuff with interleukin six. So if you inject an animal with, with a pharmacological dose of interleukin-6, so, so we're talking about a dose that would lead to circulating concentrations many-fold higher than you'd ever see during exercise, okay. you can see mm -hmm. subtle, subtle changes in the induction of some of these early response genes. But mm -hmm. the physiological relevance of that, I, you know, I, I'm not sold on it. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, a lot of times it's, it's kind of Ackman's razor, right, that, that, Normally the, you know, everything else being equal, the, the simplest explanation is, is normally the correct one. And I would have a tendency to lean in that direction versus, versus, you know, some of these more kind of elaborate signaling pathways that have been hypothesized. Now I know a lot of people would probably disagree with me, but. Okay. Now I know you had um, papers with uh, you know, with your background in AMPK, and and I mentioned yeah. earlier that the Saha and Rudiman and maybe Laurie Goodyear had also shown activation of AMPK in fat. Do you think that's yeah. playing a role, or do you think maybe that's actually what's uh, increasing the, the PGS one alpha? Uh, yeah, no, no, absolutely. We we had a paper, uh, 2014-15 around there that we did in collaboration with Greg Steinberg's group at McMaster. And so we took adipose tissue from their AMPK beta-1 knockout animals, and we did some tissue culture approaches. And so if you take uh, white adipose tissue from, from a wild-type animal and you dump epinephrine on it, or, or really any beta-adrenergic stimuli, you see a nice big induction of PGC1-alpha, and you see the activation of AMPK. So we looked at the phosphorylation of AMPK and then some of its downstream substrates. You do that same experiment, but this time you culture adipose tissue from an AMPK baby one knockout animal. AMPK isn't activated nearly to the same extent, and you see a, a pretty marked blunting of the effects of some of these adrenergic stimuli as well. So to answer your question, yes, we, we think AMPK is, is probably a, a player in this. We're not looking at those questions anymore. Um, I think to really answer the question in vivo with exercise, you'd want to use an inducible AMPK knockout of some kind, uh, ideally mm. adipose tissue specific as well. Okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So I guess just, just to, to explain to people why you do that, like often people knock out genes and mice, but, but it's, it's their whole life. Yeah. So you get all these compensations and things. So, more recently, people have you know developed techniques where you can do this inducible, so you can bring it on uh, when it suits you, and it's, yeah. there should be less adaptations and things. And then if you can make it specific, because you know early on it was like you just knock it out of every tissue in the whole body, and then you're going to get all sorts of effects. But if you had an inducible one that you could just bring on 
when they're an adult, for example, in the fat only. Yeah, that would be right. the best way yeah. to look at it. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Hey, you know, I saw you had a review with Jonathan Little was first back in 2011, and Jonathan Little's been on, which is great, yeah. uh, talking about yeah. ketones and things. I know you've done some research with with ketone uh, studies. Uh, I, th- I did something occurred to me. So it was you're talking about how exercise increases mitochondrial biogenesis, not just in muscle, but in fat, as you've talked about, but also liver, brain, kidney. Um, something yeah. occurred to me that the, the, the point there is that the the muscular exercise is increasing PGS1 alpha and mitochondrial biogenesis and things in the muscle that's contracting and then all these other tissues. But then I thought, hang on a minute, you, you may not have thought of this before because I only just thought of it myself. Why isn't it increasing it in the non-active muscles then? You know, so if it's if it's releasing these myokines or exokines or something, right. and they're going everywhere. Why not the inactive muscle? <laughs> exactly. Exactly to the point I was trying to make earlier, right? That if there is some type of unifying work factor or exercise factor, right? Then you would expect to see an effect in the non-exercising muscle as well. You said that earlier. Well, you know, we're kind of I'm dancing sure. around this, dancing ah, around this cool. issue, right? Of, All right, of cool. Kind of, you know, yeah, a muscle-derived signaling factor. But, you know, it's a really, really good point. And if you look at kind of classical work, out of Scandinavia, right? Like one-legged mm-hmm. kicking exercise, you see adaptations yeah. in the leg that's kicking. Exactly. But not in the contralateral control, right? Exactly. Not to say that, you know, maybe a muscle-derived signaling factor isn't important. So so there's some type of synergistic effect, right? Mm-hmm. That's but, exactly what we're doing here. We, we yeah. track one, we exercise one leg and do insulin sensitizing in both legs and look at the mechanism. That's uh, very interesting. And what it might be is, is you don't actually want your inactive muscle to have increases in mitochondrial biogenesis and things, do you? Because, you know, like it's, it doesn't sort of make sense, but it makes sense obviously in these other tissues or it wouldn't be happening, I guess. Exactly. It's philosophical, but yeah. Yeah. And and, and so I think, you know, any tissue that is going to undergo a degree of energetic stress during exercise, I would predict that tissue would then respond by increasing the amount of mitochondria, right? Exactly. So exactly. whether it's adipose tissue, heart, liver. There you, you go. And the, and the inactive yeah. muscle isn't having an energetic stress. Perfect. All right. So we just yeah. sorted that one out. Um, <laughs> now, what I've thought about a lot is, is the fact that you've done a lot of studies, and it's very interesting, on this concept of beijing so, and, and turning you know white tissue more brown. So do you want to just explain first of all, what that is, because people may not even realize it's diff- you know, different types of, of adipose tissue sure, and, sure. and whether exercise does actually cause uh, changes. Yeah. And, and so we kind of think of adipose tissue perhaps naively along a continuum. So on, on one end of the continuum, you have white adipose tissue. So this tissue depot that's engineered to store excess calories as, as fat. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have brown adipose tissue, which at least in a rodent is a thermogenic organ. And when brown adipose tissue is activated, uh, it turns on heat producing uh, processes, right? And then in the middle, um, we have a type of adipose tissue called brown or, or I should say uh, beige or bright adipose tissue. So this is a white adipose tissue that has pockets of uh, 
brown adipocytes within it. So this would be characterized by the presence of uncoupled protein one and um, uh, multi-locular uh, fat cells. So one fat cell with, with multiple lipid droplets within it. Mm -hmm. And really the- yeah, Sorry, do you, do you want to just tell us what, you know, why is brown adipose tissue important? You said thermogenic, maybe just explain what that means and you know why it's- Right, so, so it turns on um, uh, heat, heat producing processes to maintain um, the core temp of the animal. So if you take an animal and you put it from, you know, room temperature or thermal neutrality, which is a little bit warmer into the cold, brown adipose tissue will be activated probably through some of the same mechanisms that we've been talking about before. So adrenaline and noradrenaline, and this is going to lead to the generation of heat. And that through, would be futile cycling as well, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so this is, thought to be have, have been you know a potential anti-obesity target right so if we can turn on brown adipose tissue maybe this could either prevent the development of obesity or be used a, as a treatment uh, modality for it okay so because Even you'd be churning through energy exactly yeah 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 exactly um and, and so what's what's interesting with exercise is at least if you perform that exercise at room temperature. So animals are housed a little bit below thermoneutrality. And thermoneutrality is the temperature range where the animal doesn't have to engage any additional heat producing um, processes. And an animal, a mouse anyways, at thermoneutrality, their thermoneutral zone is around 28 to 30 degrees Celsius, depending upon who you read. And so if you house animals at room temperature, which is comfortable for us and the graduate students and postdocs doing the work there's mm -hmm. a little bit of, of thermal neutral stress or, or thermal stress in the animal right and if you exercise the animal under those conditions you see a beijing of white adipose tissue and so okay by beijing uh, I, you know it'd be the presence of these multilocular fat cells um it'd be the presence of uncoupling protein one um, and it would be the presence of, of, uh, you know, some of these genes and proteins involved in fat oxidation. And this has been a really consistent finding in the animal literature anyways. Um, so if you do forced treadmill running, if you do voluntary wheel running, if you do swimming, at least at room temperature, it all leads to the beijing of white adipose tissue. And it's been a okay, really... And, and the point, the point was, I guess, at one stage, people were saying, that humans don't really have much brown or even I think beige adipose tissue. That was the thinking. And the animals do. And then if you exercise, train them, et cetera, you get more of it. But your you and some others came along and said, well, hang on a minute, maybe that's because they're at room temperature. Oops. Right. And that's yeah. not normal for them. So then you kind of question that, right? Yeah. And and you bring up a, a really good point. So the human literature didn't line up with the animal literature at all. And so there's probably been, I'm spitballing here, like 10 to 12 papers probably um, in, in humans. So various modalities of exercise training, you know, both genders, uh, uh, different durations of exercise. And there hasn't been a consistent increase in either adipose tissue mitochondrial biogenesis or indices of browning. And so to your point, that, that kind of got us thinking a little bit, right? So what could explain these discrepancies between the human literature 
and the rodent literature. Um, and so we, we did a really kind of simple comparison um, and just looked at the effects of exercise. We housed animals at room temperature and gave them access to running wheels versus thermoneutrality. So about 30 degrees Celsius with access to running wheels. And the effects of exercise in terms of the browning of, of white adipose tissue uh, was completely gone. And so we published that in about 2019, the same time a group from Copenhagen published the same thing. And then uh, who's the third? Maybe six months later, Peter Aldous showed the same thing. And so if you house animals at thermoneutrality, the browning uh, effect of exercise is, is essentially completely wiped out. Okay. So, so, so basically animals, I guess it depends on the animal tend to have um, more brown fat than, than humans, but, yes. but what they've got tends to not be affected by training. Yeah. Is that, is that what you're saying? Essentially, you know, if you do it at the, at the thermoneutral conditions, so, which is what I'm assuming they're adapted to. Right. So, so we were specifically looking at white adipose tissue mm -hmm. And so this Beijing effect was was gone in white yeah, adipose exactly. tissue when we housed animals in thermoneutrality. We looked at brown adipose tissue. Um, there's an effect of housing to temperature for sure. So uh, things like uh, uncoupling protein one uh, gene expression and protein content were reduced in brown adipose tissue. If we just did the temperature comparison, there wasn't much of an effect uh, of exercise per se. Um, work from Rolando Cedia's lab at York has actually shown a reciprocal regulation of those two fat depots with exercise, which we think is pretty interesting. So again, at room temperature, if the exercise trains rats, he sees a beijing of white adipose tissue, while at the same time, markers of thermogenesis are reduced in brown adipose tissue. Okay. But at least in our hands, we don't see much of an effect of exercise on on that. Okay. So what about humans? So so it was thought we didn't really have much uh, brown. I, I don't know about beige, but is it is it thought now that there is so uh, they've got more sensitive uh, ways of measuring it that there is maybe some subscapular or something uh, vaguely there there is. Um, and this, like, we, we don't delve into this methodology that they're using to actually measure it, but depending upon the subject or patient population, you can detect it. I think perhaps one of the caveats of those measures is, is that when they do those, do the measurements um, is combined with a cold challenge. And so those participants are, you know, they're sitting in a room at 12 to 15 degrees C. So they're actually right. activating around adipose tissue, right? So, so they can see it. So they can see it. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I guess what's the takeaway here? Um, so with the, you know, because I, I guess we're not overly interested in the in the rodents and how much brown fat they have and things. I guess the idea was you were saying people were thinking that, that if we could increase our brown fat turnover, et cetera, we could burn more energy but is that is that looking i know you haven't really looked at that but is that looking like it, it's not really a thing at the moment yeah i mean i think the majority of data would, would probably suggest that that's not the case um that's not to say that brown adipose tissue couldn't be doing something else right maybe it's kicking out 
a batokine of some kind that, that, that could be influencing systemic metabolism and could have beneficial effects on insulin sensitivity, fat metabolism, et cetera. But from an energy expenditure standpoint, if we're just looking at energy balance as our endpoint, you know, especially with exercise, I, I don't think it's doing much. Okay. So what about the, the white adipose tissue then during exercise, we took, talked about it, you know, lipolysis, et cetera, going on, but what yeah. about the adipokines? So things that are released from white adipose tissue, uh, they're increased during exercise. So leptin, adiponectin, is that, is that right? Yeah. Acutely, we don't see changes with exercise training. You will for sure. Um, okay. so, so if you compared a, an obese animal that was sedentary versus an obese animal with that, that you exercise trained, um, due to a reduction in fat mass, you expect to see reductions in circulating leptin levels and probably increases in adiponectin. I did some work with uh, a colleague at Guelph, David Dick, years ago, and we exercise trained uh, adiponectin knockout animals. And the effect of, a, uh, of exercise on any number of kind of, you know, systemic or muscle specific markers of endurance exercise training were completely intact in the adiponectin knockout. Um, okay. So probably at best a modulatory role, we think, at least at, least at the endpoints uh, that we've looked at. Lori Goodyear's lab ha has published some stuff looking at various adipokines. So TGF beta 2, um, was identified and she's, and her group showed some, some pretty impressive effects. Um, we did a study 2017, 2018, just, you know, trying, trying to get to this idea of, is there something that's being secreted from adipose tissue with exercise training that could be mediating the beneficial effects of exercise? And <clears throat> what we did is we used a model of lipectomy. So this was in collaboration with Michelle Foster's group at, at Colorado State. And so Will Pepler, who was a PhD student in my lab at the time, he went in, uh, learned how to do the lipectomy surgeries and removed inguinal white adipose tissue from these animals, let the animals recover for about a month, month and a bit, and then gave them access to voluntary running wheels. And whether or not the animal had um, you know, intact normal amounts of inguinal white adipose tissue or no inguinal white adipose tissue, the exercise effect was completely maintained, right? Okay. And so exercise very well could be causing white adipose tissue to be kicking out something, but it doesn't seem to be required for the beneficial effects of exercise, at least in a rodent model that we're dealing with. Yeah, I just make sure people... Are, uh, um... I think I call it inguinal, but you call it something else. Do you want to just say what that where that fat is, and and is that a substantial amount of fat? Is it that's that's in that bed? So that when you yeah, remove well, that, that's uh -huh. yeah. So it would be a it'd be less than a gram in mm -hmm. um, both depots. So it's kind of found in the inside crease of the thigh, and it mm -hmm. it was this inguinal um, subcutaneous adipose tissue depot. Is probably the most responsive to exercise. So it responds really robustly to either treadmill running, voluntary wheel running, or swimming. Okay. Um, so it's kind of the, the depot of choice among folks in the field. Okay. And then when you when they removed that, it didn't have any real effects. 
Yeah, yeah. So the effect of exercise, we're, we're totally normal. So glucose tolerance, insulin tolerance, energy expenditure, mitochondrial biogenesis in any number of different tissues, circulating factors. It was a little bit disappointing. <laughs> I mean, it was just, just <laughs> normal, normal. It was just an exercise effect across the board. Okay. Just looking at these Twitter questions, uh, I think we've probably covered this. Does exercise favorably? favorably? impact brown and white tissue in the same way well i guess we talked uh that it's not really doing a whole bunch in brown by the looks of it if you do it in mice anyway it it's thermo neutral conditions which is the most relevant is that fair to say yeah in that yeah. discussion all right uh now we've got another one are the subcutaneous and ectopic fats mobilized randomly during oh well, i guess it's, i'm sure it's not randomly but during a steady state exercise or is there a way to bias the energy mobilization from each type. Well, I guess we kind of talked about that earlier, didn't we? We did. Because uh, you were saying how, why don't we just say what ectopic fat is, just because that's come up. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah, so ectopic fat would would, would be lipid that is stored in non-adipose tissue depots. Um, so muscle, liver, heart, pancreas, kidney. Um, and kind of the thought being that this ectopic fat lipid uh, deposition could be a contributing factor to the development of insulin resistance. Yes. And it can be on the coronary yeah. arteries as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. 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 All right. So we, I mentioned the brain, we've talked a little bit about the brain before and, and naturally people were very interested in whether, you know, exercise can improve your cognitive function and maybe reduce Alzheimer's disease and things like that. Now I know you've had an interest in, in the brain and exercise and specifically with antipsychotic medication. Do you want to tell sure. us a little bit about that? Cause I know you've been pumping out a lot of papers recently on that. Yeah. So, so probably take a step back and talk a little bit about antipsychotics and, and what they do and who they're sure. prescribed for. And so these are drugs that were uh, originally designed and given to individuals with schizophrenia and <clears throat> Probably at least in Canada and North America over the last decade, they've been using used increasingly more kind of off-label. So given to folks with a variety of different conditions, uh, anxiety, depression, bipolar, uh, in elderly individuals used as a, a sleep aid. So, so these drugs work centrally and they antagonize dopamine, serotonin, muscarinic, uh, histamine receptors, amongst others. Okay. And so these drugs are really effective at reducing psychoses, um, but they have some fairly pronounced metabolic side effects. And, and, and probably, you know, one of the most well-described uh, is weight gain, uh, obesity, uh, increased risk for developing type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. So this would be with chronic use. And so there's, I mean, there's, there's been a, a, a wealth of, of uh, uh, papers in that area. But I think probably an underappreciated metabolic side effect of these drugs is that with each dose of drug, it causes acute increases in blood glucose, so these spikes in blood glucose. And this oh, has been each. shown both mm. with each dose of drug, right? And, and so if you look That's... at it from the standpoint of, you know, the development of cardiovascular disease, uh, endothelial stress, things like that, obviously not a good thing. Um, and those acute metabolic side effects have been shown both in preclinical models and in, in a clinical patient population as well. So it's a pretty consistent finding. 
And so probably five, six years ago, we, we became interested uh, in this question. And so kind of what we did first was we kind of wanted to, to figure out what could potentially be driving these, these, these spikes in, in blood glucose that we see with each dose of drug using a rodent model. And so if you take an animal, inject with an antipsychotic, and one of the antipsychotics that we use is a drug called olanzapine. Um, we see increases in blood glucose, you know, causes a, a spike up to maybe 12 to 15 millimolar uh, blood glucose wow. within, yeah, within an hour. So keeping in yeah. mind, um, well, in humans, uh, glucose is usually about five, but in rodents, I guess, right. six or something. So it's like a double. Uh, you know, depending upon whether it's fed or fasted, we, we do all of our experiments in, in, in a fed state. So it's about a doubling blood glucose levels. So a doubling. Um, and we think that this is probably mediated by increases in uh, liver glucose production, secondary to increases in glucagon. So in that same experiment, if you look at serum glucagon levels, so glucagon is a neuroendocrine regulator of uh, hepatic uh, glucose output. Uh, serum glucagon levels are increased probably, I don't know, threefold. So it's, oh, a, it's a fairly robust increase that we see. And then if we do that same experiment in a glucagon receptor knockout animal, the animal is mm -hmm. completely protected against the lanzapine induced excursion into blood glucose. So we think that's probably one of the mechanisms that that's mediating these effects. And so we wanted to see, all right, you know, we know that exercise has all these potent insulin sensitizing effects. So, mm -hmm. you know, uh, work from your, your colleague, Eric Richter, right back in the early eighties with, with Neil Ruderman. Yeah, Single shot of exercise uh, sensitizes the muscle to insulin. Uh, you know, work from John Halsey and others showing that uh, muscle contractions stimulate uh, glucose uptake independent of insulin. We did a very, very simple kind of study design. Took animals, exercised them on a treadmill, took them off the treadmill, or took sedentary animals, and then immediately treated with olanzapine, which is our kind of antipsychotic of choice. In the sedentary animals, blood glucose levels go up. In the animals that had previously exercised, blood glucose levels were completely flatlined. Wow. So exercise has a protective effect, which is great. Um, we've done similar experiments using voluntary wheel running, which is a little bit trickier to do because you can't control how much an animal wants to run or not. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you give an animal access to a voluntary uh, running wheel uh, overnight, and then take the animal out and hit with the drug again, pretty much flat line. Yeah. So we know that exercise has a really kind of marked and robust protective effect against SGA induced hyperglycemia. The bad news uh, is that individuals that are prescribed or prescribed these drugs, so individuals with schizophrenia, uh, exercise adherence in this particular patient population is not great right no. um and so we kind of took a step back at the time and said all right we know that exercise is beneficial unfortunately individuals that are, would be prescribed these drugs going to adhere to exercise so can we use exercise maybe as a model to try to understand signaling pathways that we could pharmacologically target that might quote unquote mimic some of the beneficial mm -hmm. effects of exercise, right? And so I'm, 
I'm not a believer in this whole idea of an exercise pill, right? But, you know, can we use exercise as a model to identify pathways that could then be pharmacologically targeted? And, and so AMPK agonists do a very nice job. Um, GLP-1 receptor agonists do a very nice job as well. Um, and so both, both you know, drugs that can target either, either of those pathways have pretty nice protective effects for sure. Okay, so I just clarify. Uh, just one thing I can't help thinking is: so you say you give the antipsychotic lazapine, and you get a big increase yeah. in glucagon. So glucagon, as you said, is a hormone uh, that stimulates the liver to release glucose, uh, yeah. and you get like a fourfold increase. So you get a, like a doubling of glucose, yeah. And yeah. then, but if you exercise, you prevent that. But do you, are you preventing the glucagon effect, or is it more because the exercise stimulates more insulin sensitivity in the muscle? Yeah. Great question, and it depends upon. The model of exercise that you're using and so okay. with forced treadmill running which is much more intense most likely than, than voluntary wheel running we think it's probably a muscle insulin sensitivity story so you just have a bigger sink right to to put that glucose into mm -hmm. following drug treatment whereas with voluntary wheel running we do see a suppression uh of the glucagon response to the alanzapine challenge and so they're, okay. they're two completely different models. Mm. Mm. Yeah. To get sort of the same end result. That's interesting. Yeah. And yeah. do we know, well, it's probably getting a bit nitty gritty. <laughs> I was just wondering if we, do we know what causes the glucagon release and do we know how exercise stops the glucagon release, but it's probably a bit too. too. Right. So we think that the glucagon release is probably centrally mediated. So increased sympathetic outflow. Um, we've done a little bit of, of collaborative work with, with Jacob Knudsen uh, in Copenhagen. If you squint at the data, maybe there's a little bit of a direct effect of olanzapine in terms of, of, of causing glucagon secretion um, in islets. Um, we think it, it is probably driven, driven centrally. So that's something okay. we could probably tease out, I think. And when you, I'm sure when people are taking elazapine or another antipsychotic, it's having its effects in the brain, but you're injecting the elazapine peripherally or you're injecting it into like a ventricle in the brain? Uh, peripherally. Yep. So depending upon the drug we're using, either like an IP or sub-Q injection. Um, we also do long-term feeding studies. And I mean, as you probably know, it's really stressful to the animal if you're doing repeated daily injections of yeah, anything. Yeah. Um, so in those experiments, what we do is we, we compound it, mix it into a high fat diet and then they just okay. eat it. Yeah. Okay. So there is, there right. is a little bit of clinical relevance to it. Great. All right. So you've shown exercise, uh, can prevent this, this negative effect of raising glucose. But yeah. as you say, a lot of people with schizophrenia don't exercise. So you're trying to instead target pathways that are activated by exercise such as AMP kinase uh what was the other one you said a oh, glp1 GLP. so yeah what's the yeah. glp1 story so a lot of people why don't you just tell people what glp1 is and and it's kind of all the rage nowadays yeah um, yeah so yeah great question so glp1 is a incretin hormone so it's secreted by by the gut following the you know the the consumption of of carbohydrate and it you know it helps suppress glucagon secretion and at the same time stimulates insulin secretion. Um, and, and so we've used drugs that have targeted the GLP-1 
receptor. So things like liraglutide. And liraglutide has a, uh, a fantastic protective effect for sure. And these GLP-1 drugs or GLP-1 receptor agonist drugs ha have been in the news quite a bit recently. So things like Ozempic. Um, mm -hmm. So GLP-1 receptors is expressed in a lot of tissues. Uh, it's expressed in the brain. And this drug called Ozempic uh, causes fairly marked weight loss through uh, inducing satiety. So folks with mm -hmm. obesity are treated with Ozempic kind of off label, right? And um, it causes, uh, you know, a suppression of appetite and, and, and weight loss. So, okay. I, so and you I think GLP-1 stuff is, is fairly relevant to what's going on today. And, and you think the effect you're getting with the elazapine is because it's preventing glucagon release. Is that right? Yes. So it's preventing or, the increase in glucose. Right. And, and so we, we've done these experiments where we've co-treated. So antipsychotic plus the GLP-1 receptor agonist completely blunts the rise in blood glucose and it blunts the rise in, in serum glucagon as well. And so it lines up, it lines up pretty nicely. So pretty much any intervention that we've done, whether it be voluntary exercise, a drug like uh, GLP-1 receptor agonists, we've done some nutritional approaches as well. We see really nice kind of mirrored relationship between if there's a blunting in blood glucose, there's a blunting in the rise in serum glucagon as well, which I think lines up with our data in the glucagon receptor knockout animals being protected against so maybe, glucose. You know how you were saying you were trying to prevent the increases in glucagon that you get or or the increase in glucose that you get uh, with, with antipsychotics in humans, but you're saying they don't exercise enough so maybe you'll get yeah. it in a roundabout way if they happen to be, um, if they put on enough weight, they'd be given. They might be given a GLP one agonist, right? And then they'll right. get it. They'll get it yeah. that way, which is a yeah. very roundabout way and of getting there. There's, <clears throat> there. there's been a study done using liraglutide in individuals with schizophrenia, and they weren't looking at the acute effects of the antipsychotic on blood glucose, but they're looking at the prevention of weight gain. Weight gain. And mm -hmm. prevention of weight gain with an antipsychotic was pretty much wiped out uh, in individuals that were prescribed the GLP-1 receptor agonist. So it's, mm -hmm. it, I, I think it's it's a good target to go after for sure. I wonder if they looked at their acute, it'd be interesting. Yeah, go. Now it'd be interesting to see it. Look at the acute glucose effect as well to the yep. to the medication. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think the problem being that that there's just not enough of the drug out there, right? There's shortages. Exactly. So that's a challenge for sure. Yeah, that's the thing. It's interesting because it's been around for years, but it's only really become into the mainstream sort of thinking because I think, as you said, it's kind of off label that they're, they're prescribing it now, not just to people with type two diabetes, but to Right. Uh, overweight, obese people as well. And then you can get to the point yeah. where there's not enough medication for the people with type 2 diabetes. Okay. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. 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 So again, with the people with schizophrenia mainly, but as you said, uh, some other mental illnesses are also taking these antipsychotics. Um, you're saying you it's hard to get people to exercise enough, but um, you also have a paper with, with fasting and uh, consumption of ke high ketone diets. Yeah, and that, that could be protective. Do you want to just tell us about that as well? Yeah, yeah. 
We think so. Um, and, and so, you know, as you just mentioned, right, that, that individuals with schizophrenia exercise adherence is, is going to be poor. And so we were wondering if maybe we could take some nutritional approaches to, uh, you know, potentially alleviate any psychotic induced hyperglycemia. And there had been an earlier paper and they had, they had looked at the acute effects of antipsychotics and blood glucose in the fed state and the fasted state. And in the fed state, they, they saw the expected increases in blood glucose. And in that same paper, in a different panel, they showed it under fasting conditions. And under fasting conditions, it was markedly reduced, but they, they never did a direct comparison between the two. Okay. Which is just like, I, I have no idea why they didn't. So we went ahead and repeated that and did a direct comparison between the two. And if you fast an animal overnight, so we're looking at about a 16 hour fast, um, the fasted animal is completely protected against the lanspine induced hyperglycemia. Again, that lines up pretty nicely with uh, suppression of uh, glucagon secretion. Oh, and so good. we thought, all right, what is it about fasting that could be mediating this protective effect? And, you know, what, one of the uh, kind of hallmark characteristic changes of fasting is increases in fatty acid oxidation, right? And so a marker of that, at least systemically, would be beta-hydroxybutyrate. And old work, like kind of uh, late 70s, early 80s, um, you know, using a, a, a perfused rat pancreas, I think. You perfuse that pancreas with ketone bodies and glucagon uh, secretion is suppressed. So we thought, you know, maybe this could be a potential mechanism. So we, we did a follow-up to that fasting study and just went ahead and took mice and injected them with, you know, beta-hydroxybutyrate at various concentrations. And then which is treated a, a, with a ketone body. Uh-huh. Yeah, which is a, yeah, sorry, which is a ketone body. Um, and then treated with the antipsychotic. Wasn't much of a protective effect at all. So then we thought, all right, maybe we need to jack up uh, ketone bodies even higher. So we talked to John Little and he sent us some uh, oral ketone esters, which we ended up gavaging the animal with. And that causes screamingly high beta hydroxybutyrate levels. So ketone bodies mm -hmm. were up around six to eight millimolar. So like well outside anything really physiologically relevant. And again, so uh, gavage for the ketone ester, that wasn't protective against the uh, effects of the antipsychotic. So kind of took a step back and said, all right, we have this fasting effect. We don't, we can't really mimic that at least acutely with either beta hydroxybutyrate, which is a ketone body or these oral ketone esters. So maybe we need to have these, you know, uh, an increase in, in ketone bodies on board for a longer period of time. So how could we do that? So uh, ketogenic diet, right? Which is kind of all the rage. I don't know if you've had anyone on the pod outside of John that, that's talked about ketone bodies at all, but. So far only John, but yeah, I've got, Couple yeah, of others yeah. so yeah. so we we fed animals a, a, a ketogenic diet for a couple of days. The reason that we did a relatively short term feeding was we wanted to minimize differences in body weights between the two groups. At least in a mouse, that if, if you feed them a, a ketogenic diet, they lose weight really really rapidly. So we kind of matched them as best we could for for body weight. So two day ketogenic diet treated with the antipsychotic, and the animals were were protected. So the animals that had 
been eating the ketogenic diet were protected. And again, that seemed to line up pretty nicely with the suppression of, of glucagon secretion as well. And so we think, you know, maybe fasting, maybe ketogenic diet could be beneficial. I think we still kind of run into the same problem though, Glenn, of, of adherence issues in these individuals, right? So there's so much going on, apathy, uh, social withdrawal, amotivation, that really getting them to follow um, a fairly strict dietary regime could be just as difficult uh, as getting them to perform exercise, you know, prior to taking mm -hmm. any psychotics. So I think if you were to try to pull off this type of study to try to get kind of proof of principle clinically, that it would be protective. You'd almost have to do it. I think you would have to do it in an inpatient setting of some kind. I, I don't think you could do it uh, otherwise. I think adherence is interesting. Yeah, if that if you could get them to do it, it would be interesting because because you're getting both preventing the overweight that they tend to have as well. Yeah, right. And the glucose spikes. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but I wonder what effect it has on their mental health. You know, I guess we don't know from mouse studies, but you know, even if you I guess that's the thing as well. Even if you prevented the increase in weight and you prevented the glucose spikes, that would be good for their diabetes and things, risk of diabetes. Right. But wonder if it has any, do you know, has anyone looked at, and this is getting way off, <laughs> has anyone looked at the effect of uh, ketogenic diets on mental health, people, cognitive function? I don't know. It's, yeah, sure. yeah. So there's, I, I have a new postdoc in the lab that just started. And so he's done some behavioral work uh, in, in preclinical mouse models before. So cognition and, and, and that type of stuff, open field tests. And, and so we're, we're going to try to answer some of these questions, right. Okay. In a long term model of, of a lens painting treatment to your point, right. I, I think it's really, really important consideration that it's great if you're improving metabolic health, but not at the consequence of reduced drug efficacy in terms of you know uh, mitigating psychoses, right? That's I guess that's the endpoint, isn't it? If they're getting less, that's the end, right? And so that's what we that's what we really really need to uh, tease out. And I think what we also need to do is to repeat some of these studies in a rodent model, a preclinical model of uh, of kind of psychiatric illness. There's not a lot of really good ones out there. There's a few that, that we've talked about doing, but I think that will be an important consideration as well moving forward. And it's, I guess no one's thinking, is anyone thinking about these in human trials? Um, you we've, know. we've thought about it. Uh, yeah. We've thought about it. So I'm uh, my lab is actually at BC Children's Hospital Research Institute. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've talked to clinician colleagues of mine here and we'd like to at least attempt something at some point. Uh, really, really tricky patient population to deal with, though. That's for sure. And I guess I'm I'm guessing, but I hope I'm wrong. Is it fair to say that the average psychiatrist probably wouldn't know about these acute effects of antipsychotics on glucose levels, for example? Um, probably. I think they'd probably be aware, but I, and I I could be speaking out of turn, but I think that their primary concern is the mental health, mental wellness of, of their patient, right? Oh, of course. And so let's, let's. And they have, they have the highest suicide rates. Yeah. Yes, I, mean, I was just say that. Exactly. So if someone's yeah. suicidal, you're not that worried about their 
um, metabolic health in 20 years time or something. Right. Is, right. I guess we've got to keep the eye on the prize here. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. And, and it's, right. and these drugs are, it's scary, right? Because you're seeing younger and younger individuals being prescribed these drugs. So kids like 10, 11, 12 years of age being, to, you know, prescribed these drugs and metabolically yeah. it's, it's horrific but to your point right like yeah. what's what's the important uh aspect of the disease that needs to be treated well it's the mental health aspect it's not uh the metabolic health at least yeah, exactly. initially so well, i was surprised when you said because i always thought antipsychotics were uh, schizophrenia and and bipolar if they're having you know manic episodes and things but you're saying it's becoming uh, more and more, more prescribed yeah wow. yeah yeah, and, and oh, especially depressing note to finish up on. So let's not finish yeah. up on that. Hey, is there any <laughs> sex? Let's say let's finish up on something different. Is there any sex? Sure. So going back to to either the fat oxidation during exercise, the effects of uh, exercise on fat, or the the um, psychotics. Do you know is there any sex differences or any sort of age? If people looked at effects of age or sex on on any of these things. Right. Maybe I don't know the fats so. maybe. Yeah, so so if we look at our antipsychotic stuff, I mean, not age per se, but but we've done a comparison between lean animals and uh, animals that we put on a high fat diet for a couple months. And we thought that was an important uh, consideration because individuals that are prescribed antipsychotics often present with obesity and, and metabolic dysfunction even before they're given the drug. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at the animals with diet induced obesity, it's a potentiated effect of the antipsychotic. Right. So it's not, yeah, it's not aging per se, but my guess is if you aged animals out, which are expensive studies to do, you'd probably see exactly mm. the same thing. So yep, yep. the older the animal, the worse the, the metabolic outcome. And in terms of That's true. biological sex, we do see some really pronounced uh, effects, both acutely and chronically, which, which make kind of modeling that the preclinical data difficult. Um, so we've, we've published this data, um, female mice are protected against the acute metabolic side effects, at least if we're looking at changes in blood glucose oh. levels compared to males, um, lipid metabolism is also perturbed, uh, with acute antipsychotic treatment. Oh, okay. And that's, there, there's no sexually dimorphic effect, um, in mice in, in terms of that endpoint and with chronic treatment. Females are more susceptible uh, to weight gain, dyslipidemia, fatty liver disease uh, oh. than males. So okay. it's so it's difficult to it's it's difficult to really accurately model what we're seeing clinically in a preclinical okay. model. So we end, we end up doing everything in, in both sexes pretty much. Okay, and I guess I didn't think about acute and chronic because um I guess ideally you'd have people taking the antipsychotics just when they're acutely at risk, um, yeah. you know, for weight gain and glucose changes and things, but um, that's rather than sort of ongoing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And those are probably studies that, that need to get done at some point. So do we see the sexually dimorphic response acutely in, uh, in human participants? And that hasn't been looked at. Well, I think there's lots to be looked at, huh? <laughs> okay. Yeah. So yeah. if we, if we, um, yeah, so what I like to do is um, sum up at the end. So some takeaways, sort of messages. I know we've covered, covered a lot of ground here. 
maybe if you've yeah. got some takeaway message messages for both the effects of exercise on on, on adipose tissue and maybe the antipsychotic side of things sure yeah so i think in terms of in terms of the adipose tissue story you know it's i think there's a couple of really two two big questions that that still need to be addressed so one why don't we see these metabolic adaptations in humans when we see it in rodents right and that could be due to the housing temperature it could also be due to the fact that in humans when you do these exercise training studies and you do an adipose tissue biopsy you're taking it from a subcutaneous depot you're not taking you're not taking it from an intra-abdominal or visceral depot. Uh -huh. And maybe subcutaneous adipose tissue in a human isn't the same as subcutaneous adipose tissue in a rodent. And so if there could be any way that you could do pre-post adipose tissue biopsies in a human, but from an from a abdominal adipose tissue depot, then that might be able to answer that, that question pretty nicely. What a clarify, I, think, yeah. I guess. I guess people do take subcutaneous from the abdomen, but you're talking about right. the actual organ, like the deeper. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And uh -huh. I don't know if you ethically can pull those studies off. I've talked yeah, to some colleagues in, in, in Copenhagen and, and they've said no. Um, so if not in Copenhagen, where, I guess. Exactly. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, and then I guess the other big question is, is, you know, what is the function of an increase in mitochondria in adipose tissue with exercise, right? And so we've talked about this idea of, you know, maybe it being somehow linked to fatty acid reesterification. That hasn't really been uh, empirically tested as of yet. So I think that's another big question that needs to be addressed. Um, you know, from the antipsychotic story, we've done a lot of work preclinically. What I think needs to be done is that preclinical work serving as the basis for some nice translational studies down the road. Again, super challenging to do given the patient population, but I think if you really want to impact that the mental and metabolic health of individuals given these drugs, those are studies that definitely need to be done. Okay. And when, uh, when you do get over here, is it uh, the work that you're looking at uh, so you mentioned Jonas, I've just forgotten his name. I was talking to him yesterday um, with the antipsychotic stuff. Oh, know, uh, Jacob, uh, Jacob Knudsen. Oh, sorry, Jacob. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so what is, is that the work you're, you're doing with that's, in Copenhagen? Yeah. Yeah. So that's the work that we're going to be doing. I say we, it, it's probably going to be the postdocs in his lab that are going to be doing the experiments, but uh -huh. we want to do some follow-up and actually see if these antipsychotics have a direct effect on causing glucagon secretion from isolated islets. Um, and then try to follow that up with some work in, in vivo work in, in my lab back here in, in, in Vancouver. Uh, yeah. Okay. So for isolated islets, so people, people would have heard of islets probably with beta cells with insulin secretion. Yeah but you have the alpha cells in the islets yeah. that release glucagon and they're sort of not thought of as often, yeah. but I guess they're getting yeah. thought of more and more recently. Yeah. Yeah. And Jacob, um, Jacob's done some fantastic work in the field. So we figured he'd be a, a good guy to collaborate with in those studies for sure. Right. All right. Well, thanks for your time. Great to chat and I might yeah. see you in a few weeks or. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. Thanks good on you. Take thanks care. mate. All right. Bye. You too. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and please like, subscribe, pass it on to your friends and colleagues. Check out the other podcasts. Thanks again.